welcome everyone. Today, I am so honored to introduce our speaker, our guest, Frances Moore LePay. Her book came out 50 years ago, Diet for a Small Planet, and it was revolutionary at the time. Um, today, it's profound in the messages that it was delivering, and it's more important than ever. Okay, so this was the book, and it came out, and it talked about how we can make some active choices and feed the world by stopping and changing the way that we, we consume food. The book was ahead of its time and more relevant than ever. And this is the new book. So if you haven't bought a copy of the new book, I urge you to do so. It's profound. It's beautiful. And it also comes with um, recipes. So not only can you change your life and change the planet, but you can also make some amazing meals for your friends and your family. But I would like to ask Francis to give a little bit of background on why you, why you wrote the book 50 years ago. Okay. Imagine you're in 1970 in the Bay Area. My husband was a postdoc at UC Berkeley at the time. That's what got me there. And um, the whole conversation, the public conversation, it felt like, was about this, what I now call the scarcity scare, the population bomb. Paul Ehrlich's book had just come out a few years before that. And a lot of young women were saying, I can't have children because we're overrunning the earth. And that was widely believed. And there was another book called Famine 1975, really scary, that there was going to be worldwide famine just around the corner. And so I was a young woman then who hadn't found my path exactly. I had, I had been a warrior in the war on poverty, working as a community organizer in Philadelphia. And the woman I was closest to died of a heart attack in her early 40s. And I was convinced that she didn't die of a heart attack. She really died of poverty. <laughs> totally unnecessary. And I wanted to get to the roots of Lily's death. And so um, because you could live on a postdoc salary, and I was very free to do what I wanted to do, and I sat in the Berkeley Library, and I started saying, okay, food, yeah, that is the most important need beyond air and water is food, and we're failing. We, we the brightest species, we're not doing it. We have all this hunger in the world, and is it really because there's not enough? Is that really why? And so with my dad's slide rule, if you know what that is, I went to the Berkeley Library and discovered that, no, really, there was more than enough for all of us. And we, bright species here, we were actually taking plenty of food and reducing it so that, it, that people – and reducing the access to it both uh, so that many were going hungry totally unnecessarily. And then – and I'll stop here, but – after I say that I thought it was such a happy, you know, such a positive message, on the one hand, negative, but on the other hand, hey, if we humans have created the problem, that means we humans can solve the problem. So it's not like it's inevitable that people starve. And I thought that was a really important and, and really positive thing. And so I wrote a just one-page handout that became a booklet, and then it got into the hands of the founders of paperback publishing. <laughs> And uh, when I say that, I, I often tell students that I made a D on my first English paper in college, and the last career I had imagined was becoming a writer. <laughs> so you never know. It's not possible to know what's possible. You're, you're a wonderful writer, and by reviewing the book and looking at where we've come since you wrote the book, I'm wondering if you can share some of the optimistic and hopeful stories that you have uncovered continuing this path and research in the course of writing the 50th, um, you know, review of the book and the edition of the book? Well, I, I, I like to call myself a possibilist in the sense that I believe that human beings don't need to feel confident that things will work out. All we humans need is the sense of possibility that our actions can make a difference and we will step up. And so I, I often, you know, in this world that we live in of continuous change where everything's connected, then it really is impossible to know what's possible. And we just have to go for it. And that's really sort of the theme of my life. And so I look 
And I have been put myself in contact uh, very deliberately with people who keep me in that sense of possibility, people who are doing what no one would have imagined was possible. In 2005, My Hero published a book with heroes, and you were one of the heroes that we featured. And our my co-founder, Karen Pritzker, was the um, engine and editor who put that book together. And your chapter in it was profound and has really um, illuminated to me one of the most important heroes that we refer to over and over again as we talk to students around the world about the impact of one. So, you know, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that. Yes, thank you. Well, um, I had the great privilege, all of you parents out there will know that one incredible opportunity. I got to travel the world with my then 26-year-old daughter. This was in the year 2000 and write a book together that she named Hope's Edge. She, my daughter, Anna, named Hope's Edge because we, we, um, we interviewed people on five continents who were pushing forward the edge of hope. And we went to Kenya and we met with the leader of the Greenbelt Movement, Wangari Maathai. And this was a person who had grown up in, you know, under British colonial <laughs> uh, situation in a school where she was told not to speak her native language and very repressive and um, very poor, simple, you know, simple um, life. And she somehow walked the walk and she just kept, uh, kept taking risks and being thwarted, thwarted and thwarted and was once beaten and, and uh, jailed. And she just kept on going. And in this Green Belt movement that then spread to other countries in Africa, it was a, 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 a reestablishment of forests because she was so alarmed at the deforestation, deforestation of Africa. And so it became really a global um, movement that uh, she was such a leader in. And I remember when Anna and I were there at her guest house and we had the great privilege of talking at length and I just you know my mouth was dropping open at the stories of her bravery and I said Wangari you know how do you how do you keep going and she said well you just one step and the other step and you take the next step you just keep walking and then she paused paused for a moment and said but sometimes you have to jump <laughs> and I just love that you know sometimes you just have to take that leap um, whether it feels like you're going to make it to the other side or not. And so she then, um, you know, became my sort of all-time hero, and all my talks would end with her image. And I, I still remember hearing I was good friends with a woman who was with Wangari in a car in Africa when she got the call from the Nobel Committee that she'd been selected for a Nobel Prize. And Wangari said, oh, we won. <laughs> Right. And so it was just her spirit. That was it. You know, that it, was, it wasn't about her at all. It was about the Greenbelt movement, about all the people that she had um, been with. And I always end my talks on the theme of courage and how it doesn't require certainty. Um, but it does require doing what we thought we could not do. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, that is, you know, Wangari Maathai is a great hero, and thank you for sharing your chapter in the book. And and I, I'm going to go back to a slide, if you don't mind, and show some of the Instagram slides for a minute that your team and you have been putting together. Do you mind reading this quote for us, Francis? Uh, I began this journey with the realization that growing and eating plant-centered diets was a great choice. Today, it is a no-contest necessity. Either we now make a big turn, or life on Earth as we know it is gone forever. Almost 60% of the world's harvested biomass goes to feed to livestock, excuse me, livestock feed and bedding. The energy cost of all this processing is staggering. We use twice as much energy to process our food as to produce all of our nation's crops, according to the Department of Agriculture. Now, if if you would just share how you see this being turned around. 
you know, I, 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 I know you understand there's, there are people out there and it's a growing number of people and you identify some of the key movements. So I'm wondering if you can share with us where you see the change being the most profound. I've spent the last 50 years weaving the food message with the message of democracy. Underneath the, all the questions on life on earth now is how we make decisions together. And there is only one form so far that's proven to work, and, and that is when we create democracies that are where power is shared, where we all have a voice, where public, public action is transparent so we know what's going on. Uh, those and uh, where there is a sense of mutual responsibility. We're not just pointing fingers at each other. What I love to say is a condition of democracy is yes, we can point fingers, but the finger has to come full circle. Uh, I love to quote uh, Rabbi Joshua Abraham Heschel, who said, um, some are guilty, but we're all responsible. And I love to think about it that way, that it's uh, if we're all responsible because we're all connected, then we all have power. And the only choice we don't have, therefore, is to, to change the world because our action as well as our interaction has consequences. And so for me, um, this the connection with food, uh, it's, it has a particular power to get us asking the deepest questions about who is making the decisions. In other words, about whether our democracy is working and how do we transform that. Um, so I, I love to just point out that um, my intuition from the beginning was that food had a special power because it connects us to our body and to each other. I learned that the root of the word companion is with bread, compan. Companion is so we're linked to each other through food and that we're linked, obviously, to the earth. And so it has this special power where the ripples just go out, go out. And um, so I think that that, you know, is what I'm trying to get at. And that for me, it's then taken me to sort of what, again, back to the, my other part of this weaving is, is democracy and what is it and how do we create a democracy that has those elements in it that can really address the roots of our food crisis, our climate crisis, and um, our, you know, social justice inequality, extreme, extreme inequality that we have here, worse than in 100 countries. So I'm just trying to figure out now how to, you know, to really help people understand that, that the, the taproot, if you will, how we make decisions together, uh, democracy is not some dull duty that it's really a living process that is never finally won, as uh, the first black American justice appellate judge said, uh, it is being, it is not being, it is becoming. Democracy is, you know, always unfinished in that way. It is a journey. And so that's, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, I, I think you have. I mean, you know, in the introduction, you go through eight healing steps in terms of you know, the planet, and you talk about ecological farming and choosing organic yes. and, and, yeah. and schools making healthy food choices, this idea that we are what we eat, and, and every act is an act towards, you know, democracy, social justice. Are we taking care of ourselves? Are we taking care of our planet? So, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I wondered if you could talk about where you see the impact that we each can have by making these choices with the healing steps that you've identified. Yes. Well, I remember making that list and one of the things that touched me uh, just that organic, organic agriculture among its many values is that we don't, we're not exposed to the harmful pesticides, but on the positive side, it has a fraction, uh, you know, from, you know, a third to half of the greenhouse gas emissions um, involved in, um, chemical agriculture. So it has many, many advantages of, I learned that half of farm workers are pesticide poisoned every year. And so the, the growth of organic is extremely important. And I learned that the southern states, there were six southern states that in just five years had doubled their organic acreage. So it is, 
it is definitely not just, you know, about the coast or, you know, people in a certain framework that it is growing in popularity and, um, and use. And so I think that that's really important to understand. And my daughter, Anna LaPay, who was so helpful in this 50th anniversary edition, I always want to give a shout out to Anna. Um, I can tell, say more about that, but, um, you know, she has been part of uh, working with the Good Food Purchasing Program, which now I believe in 16 cities, um, the, the school lunch programs are tied in with local farmers so that children are getting healthy local food and um, that's helping to transform the system. So there, there are quite a number of those sorts of changes underway. I know community-supported agriculture started here in Massachusetts, I believe it was in the 80s, and now, you know, it's really easy for us to, <laughs> to get our summer produce just a mile from here. Um, so I, that, that it too is a, and there are 29,000, I think it is now, um, uh, community gardens, I think I got that right. Yeah. Um, is that right? Oh, I got a fact checker here. <laughs> so, um, so all of that I find so inspiring. And then I, I love to live in my consciousness with this larger world reality. And so I contacted a hero of mine at the UK, Jules Pretty, uh, Dr. Jules Pretty, who has made his profession and gotten work and helpers all over the world counting to count and getting a, a count of the emergence of cooperative sustainable you know not necessarily technical cooperatives but you know what i mean they're they are working together people working together in all countries of the world sustainably to grow food and he said that in the year 2000 there were just a, a half a million such groups they identified and they've been looking and in the next 20 years there were 8 million more of these groups throughout the entire world. And I've forgotten how much land they <laughs> have, but it's very significant growth in just 20 years. And so I got to then visit um, one of my great for good fortunes was visiting such a group in India and had such a personal connection. It's called the Deccan Development Society, and it wasn't far from Hyderabad, you know where that is in India, and I got to go sit down with women farmers, each with their little um, mound of seeds on a mat, and just talk, 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 you know, getting to know each other, and I learned that and this is the example of exactly what I, I think Jules Preddy is, is talking about with his 8 million groups, but this group, Deccan Development Society, and they, they told me that 20 years ago, everyone in their village was hungry. And they felt, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, I guess by now, that everyone in their village was hungry and they had felt no power. They could vis-a-vis their husbands or their farming, but they got together as women at night after their children were in bed. They started sharing with a little, you know, the little bit of coins they had and, and, and able to collect and get land. And now, and now they're growing like 20 crops in, on one acre of all the healthy food. And they have a radio station where they can share what they're doing with the rest of India. And now their crops are being procured for the local schools. And now this is spread to 75 villages. So I, I, I tell that story as emblematic of what doesn't make the news typically, but is transforming. It's beautiful. And, you know, the fact that 3 million people have read your book and that it started 50 years ago, I can't help but think that some of those farming communities has been translated in many languages that you've created a lot of these ripples and that your information that you've provided to us is continuing to have such a profound effect. And the fact that your daughter has been educated by you and has embraced this choice is so beautiful. And, um, yeah, I just, I, yeah, no, I, I'm just in awe really of the success of your work, the importance of your work and um, I'd like to go back and show a few more slides, if you don't mind. Sure. Can I just tell a little personal? Please, please. About Anna and me. So we're just about to land in Delhi as we're going in to interview people for Hope's Edge. And we're studying, looking, you know, agriculture in India. And we learned that there's 
Annapurna, and we start looking into it, it seems like the word Anna was basically food. <laughs> so I think I may, may have named my daughter food. Um, but she she really helped me. I have to tell you, when, when she went to Diet for Small Planet, the, the 20th anniversary edition, that's still the original recipe, she said, Mom, do you realize you still have 70 references to margarine in your original book? <laughs> and because I, I learned from my son, actually, who's a documentary filmmaker, and, and dug into this, that the sugar industry was so smart during that period in the 70s. They wanted us to divert from their throwing sugar at us. So they made fat, animal fat, into the problem. Uh, any kind of animal fat said that was what's horrible, you know. So um, I, I bought that, and I thought, oh, yeah, I bought that idea, and I, I should only use margarine. But um, now we have a plethora of wonderful um, plant oils that we can use. But anyway, I took her advice and took all the margarine out. (laughs) You know, we evolve and we change and we grow and that this 50th edition is is evidence of that and the the recipes that you've had contributed by some of the greatest chefs who are embracing a vegan diet as well are just beautiful and profound. So um, we talked about this energy and, and how much as we're looking at the COP26 right now and the crisis of climate change, um, we understand that through your book, the power of changing our ways. And, um, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from our eating beef is, uh, and the water. You know, we're living in California with a real crisis of, of water, and, and that's true for a lot of people. So, understanding. you mind reading this to educate everybody with your voice, Francis? Producing a pound of beef takes 1,800 gallons of water, nearly 50 times more than for a pound of veggies and about nine times more than for grain. So that was one of the real extraordinary findings um, that I just had to share. The single, if, if you know, if you're talking to friends, I think the most staggering for me statistic about our meat-centered diets that are still growing worldwide um, is that we, we devote about 80% of all agricultural land, including grazing land, to livestock. But these livestock return to us only 18% of our calories. So when I first wrote Diet for a Small Planet, that was the kind of thing that said, what? <laughs> and I called it a protein factory in reverse, right? That we take this vast amount of resources and we shrink it. And now we know also uh, that I stress in the new addition is that the deforestation, which we know is so terrible for the climate crisis, that so much of that is about agriculture, something like 80% of deforestation is for agriculture. A lot of that is for livestock. The estimate for the Amazon that that is that most of that deforestation is for either grazing or growing feed. So that is a huge factor beyond just the emissions that livestock and agriculture produce. Overall, it's estimated that agriculture, as we have it now, contributes as much as 37% of all greenhouse gas emissions. It's really time for change, and you're giving us a map on how to do it. And and that's wonderful. I, I'm going to go back into the screen share for a minute, if you don't mind. Sure. If we achieve a societal shift toward plant-based diets, we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions from farming by as much as 70% by 2050. And I think that's a very motivating fact. That's a peer-reviewed study. And um, so there's, you know, before, of course, I didn't have the climate lens when I was writing previously. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the other piece of this is the health piece uh, that was sort of referred to there in terms of food processing on an earlier slide. The the health costs the, the have increased so much um, since, and I've learned so much more about them since I wrote the first book. For one, in terms of meat, 
I didn't realize earlier that um, that meat um, in, that red meat has been has been deemed a probable carcinogen, and that processed meat, which is, makes up about 20% of American meat consumption, has been deemed a carcinogen flat out by the World Health Organization. And I just think it's tragic that more of us don't know that. Um, and that we do know that the plant, I like to say now, plant and planet-centered diets, <laughs> because it is wider than simply, you know, it's all these issues that we're talking about from species decimation to climate change to soil erosion, et cetera, uh, and forest destruction. So uh, this plant and planet-centered diet is also just healthier, that uh, it's associated with longer lives and a great um, decrease in diabetes. And on that story, I've got, uh, on that fact, I've got a story to tell. In the midst of writing the book, I got a call from the office of Eric Adams, who, who now is just the new elected mayor of New York City. And he wanted to tell me that he had been severely diabetic and was going blind in one eye from diabetes and he shifted over to the diet for small planet diet and his diabetes was healed and his eyesight returned. And I just was blown away and I thought, wow, is that, if I write about that, is it gonna to sound too good to be true? So I did the research I needed to do and to see if, if that's really, you know, if, if medical professionals are really saying that's possible. And, they confirmed it, and it was just so sweet of him to get in touch with me. And But I realized also that I started looking more into diabetes and realized that I think there's been a four-fold increase since uh, I wrote Diet for a Small Planet, a four-fold increase in diabetes, and that if you calculate all the – add the pre-diabetes Americans with the actual, you know, suffering diabetes, it comes to almost half the population. And that was just that I learned after I wrote the chapter that's in the book now. But that um, you know, just just so many different pieces of this, and and then the cost to our to um, our you know on our budgets paying for all of that medical care. So I, I just feel like all the different elements are are there to to make this turn now, and how to the question for me going forward is always how to present this in a way that doesn't make people feel embarrassed or accused or um, defensive, but just an invitation for joy and feeling healthier. And I know in my life, when I moved to a, a non-meat diet, a plant-centered diet, I, I never felt any loss. It was all about gain. It was all this world of plant food that was just so beautiful and varied, much more than meat. So I just, that's a spirit in which I want to communicate these findings, that this is a, this is a welcoming into a we can, not a you should. Well, I think that's really true. And, and the talk of sugar and salt and antibiotics, the research that you've done that adds fuel to the necessity to shift gears really quickly for, for everyone's sake is, is, is so important. Our food systems globally generate as much as 37% of greenhouse gas emissions. 2017, 11 million deaths worldwide, one in five, were from diseases in which poor diet is a risk factor. And this is from The Lancet. Lancet. Centering our eating in the plant world could cut the incidence of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, by up to 41%. This is just <laughs> staggering. Nearly 60% of all calories Americans eat now come from ultra-processed food, providing little nutrition. But not only providing little nutrition, even though it's like, but I would, you know, that negative nutrition, you know, the sugar, uh, the calories are so much from sugar. So um, that, isn't that amazing though? 60% of our calories. So I say in the new chapter that virtually none of us, you know, such a small portion actually meet the guidelines that our government agency has put forth for the healthy diet. Well, you know, the facts are there and, and we're, we're paying the price as a country and, and the opportunity. It seems, you know, you began, I think, part of your quest in starting the book was to end hunger. And I'm wondering if you can talk, you talked about the women in India, if you can talk about some of the other heroes 
who inspire you in ways that we're going sort of back to our roots and looking at the ways we plant and the way we grow food and the way we, you know, removing ourselves from large corporate um, farming to a different structure. Absolutely. I, I, I want to just tell an ending point there on the women that Deck on Development Society women, because as I was leaving this beautiful conversation in their beautiful village and I was walking toward the car and they came, a whole group, I could hear this rustle and coming after me, you know, they were racing after me. They said, wait, 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 we forgot to tell you the most important thing. And they stopped me. I said, sure, sure. They said, we forgot to tell you the most important thing we got from our sangam, the, the women's group, is courage. And I, that will stay with me forever because I feel like right now, and I feel like all of us in this group, what we offer each other by being here together is more courage to do what we thought we could not do and that we could only do together. So I just wanted to add that because it's such a – I'll never forget those faces ever. Um, but I, in terms of inspiration, another person who really inspires me is Leah Pinneman in Soul Fire Farm in uh, upstate New York, where she has this beautiful program bringing African-Americans, urban dwellers, and others who, who are wanting to learn farming, because our, we have so squeezed out African-American farmers. I have to memorize that statistic, but it's just the numbers have gone way down, the percentage of land that they control. And so she's working to reverse that. And she told me that her great-great-grandmother came over on a slave ship, or maybe your great, 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 but uh, grandmother came over and from West Africa. And before she was put into the, the bowels of this slave ship, she wove the seeds from Africa in her hair so that she would have them. And I just thought that was the most beautiful and moving. And so here her great, great granddaughter now is wanting to revive those ancient um, crops that her roots are in and to share the art of farming with African Americans. And so Soul Fire Farm is one of my hero um, organizations, like Leah Pinneman is her name. And I also think of um, one um, approach to farming that I don't know if you are aware of, but I wasn't until a few years ago. I guess I, I did have the idea that crop, crops grow over here and trees grow in forests. And actually, um, the agroforestry, the mixing of crops and trees, is a brilliant way <laughs> to grow food, especially in dry climates, because the trees will keep the soil from drying out so quickly, and the leaves can become part of the um, fertilizer and fodder for whatever livestock a family has. So I, I highlight in the book um, uh one of the poorest, well, it was the poorest country in the world, Niger, where uh, these indigenous um, practices were that they had before colonialism, French colonialism, were reestablished, and they started um, this what they call farmer-managed natural regeneration, meaning that they allowed instead of planting trees like the Wangari organization, uh, Wangari Matai's organization, they really just nurture the stubs of trees that have been cut and, and roots that are still there. And it's just amazing. I had no idea that they could regrow the way they have. And so something like uh, 15% of the, they made had enough additional food. This was in 2009 when the study was done. They had gained already from this process to feed 15% of the population just from that, that uh, new approach. And uh, I think it, um, I've forgotten the numbers of acres, but it's I think I have I have a slide for that too. Oh, good. Let me go to that for a second. Uh, um, uh, so effective were agroforestry practices in Niger that by 2009 farmers generated food security for 2.5 million people, a tenth of the population. And you know this was this farmer-led initiative. And now in our uh, Midwest, um, there is an institute the. Institute, Savannah Institute, that is also leading the way in agroforestry in our 
in our society, in our farm belt, and uh, they're doing a great job. They're based in uh, Wisconsin, and I got to talk to those folks, too. And they have what they call alley cropping, where they have um, the trees in, in rows, you know, that that's a bit different because in the Niger example, it was all this regenerative um, approach rather than the planting. But it's still the same idea, and they're getting great great response from farmers and increasing the amount that can be grown, the amount of, of healthy calories that are produced on all the land. We've been taught that our production system rewards hard work and efficiency while providing abundant food for all, but it actually rewards waste, wealth, and size, and the hungry go without food no matter how much is produced. Corporate lobbying and the farm industry and what's the, what that has done to our diets? Can you can you talk a little bit about this? I know you know it's it's tied to democracy and who. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've learned that now there are more agribusiness lobbyists in Washington than there are oil and gas lobbyists, and um, that the support is overwhelmingly for this very concentrated system where. Farmers become more or less contractors. Uh, you know, we, I don't know if you're familiar with the term sharecropper that we associated with the global south, but our farmers are becoming um, so dependent on the monopoly controlled agribusiness from the point of where they get their seeds, which used, when I started, it was like 50 companies that were competing, and now it's down to three or four. So from seeds to uh, who is going to who is going to buy your crop and process your crop, it, it um, now has gotten so consolidated that um, there is very little choice on the part of the farmer. The farmer then is, as I say, more of a, of a contract worker. And so this is, to me, fundamentally anti-democratic economics. <laughs> it's concentrating, concentrating power in the top, and agribusiness is one of the most concentrated. And then in the processing of food, as we as we know, often there's there's so many labels on products in the supermarket, and we don't realize that uh, there can be dozens that are all coming to us with, from the same monopoly power. And often the nutrients have been removed, and the sugar and salt have been added, and other ad additives uh, that are not not good for us. So um, it it is, I think of what has happened to our food system as this product of going back to really the 1970s and certainly the 1980s when Ronald Reagan told us that government was the problem and the market was the answer, um, pretty much in those terms, and that we then started pulling back on all of the standards and the direction of encouraging using our public dollars, our public, our public uh, decision-making to encourage diversified farming to encourage small farm production and independent farmers, um, and uh, to reduce the, the, the you know, the concentration. In other words, I guess the way I look at it is that when Ronald Reagan and others promoted the free market, uh, it was very, very misleading, it still is, is that every market has rules, and ours fundamentally is do what brings the highest return to existing wealth. So inevitably, then monopolies grow, and, and there is a very concentrated uh, corporate power. And Franklin Roosevelt, he warned us. He, he said in 1938, the liberty of democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to the point that it is stronger than the democratic state itself. That, in its essence, is fascism. And... You know, I still hesitate to use the F word, except when I'm quoting an American president. But I think he, he really nailed it, that, that if we allow this kind of concentration of power, that it is going to infuse our, our um, political system as it has. And so now there are um, 20 lobbyists in Washington for every one person that we elect to represent us there. So I think that this concentration in the food industry is one of the, you know, one of the most extreme in terms of industry concentration, but it is really, it's rooted in this false notion about what a market needs. A market needs rules and norms to keep um, 
keep it competitive and to make sure that the externalities like <laughs> empty calories that create fast uh, health problems, we all are paying for that and the food industry is profiting on that. So we have to develop a sense of a market where those, those quote unquote externalities, those consequences are then built in and, and, and that we don't as that, that those aren't allowed. And so we don't have to end up paying for them in our health dollars and in bio, um, in the loss of biodiversity, et cetera, and pollution and farm worker deaths and all of this. You, you make the circle and the importance of each, the interconnectedness. It isn't just changing our diet. It's right. about voting rights. It's about making sure that we are represented, not misrepresented. Right. And, and, and the cost that corporations pay as well for people that are unhealthy. I mean, at the end of the day, when profits overtake what's good for the common good, everybody really does end up paying. And, and you so beautifully um, articulate that throughout the book. And, and the lessons you've learned on this path to understand our diet and what the ripple effects are have, have made you equally aware of the danger of not having power, of, of, being, of, of having government that doesn't respond and doesn't listen to the people who are voting for people because lobbyists are taking over. I was helping almost a quarter million, 250,000 low-income farmers adopt agroforestry, mixing trees and crops and restoring the soil. And I, I, I love that example because we think of, you know, that, um, that more low-income countries compared to us wouldn't have the wherewithal to and the whatever, you know, with our image uh, to really devote that kind of support and uh, have, the, have the income, the, the public income, uh, to support that kind of initiative. So I was just really delighted to be able to put that in the book. And, um, and several other countries are similarly trying to help this move toward sustainability because um, and the more that we can share I think with friends and neighbors what other countries are doing that to show what's possible I think that is so key uh, to just get open people's minds to possibility uh, by showing what other countries are doing I want to say here that um, I think Americans unfortunately too many of us at least until very recent times with the difficulties um, during the Trump administration that there was so much has been so much a sense that we have the world's superior system and actually we rank on uh, democracy behind 50 to 60 countries depending on whose list you're looking at and I, I think uh, I don't add that to shame people but to shock people into more hey you know we can do a lot better and so that's why um, I've shared stories from other countries, including the Mexico story. It's easy to feel powerless against climate change, but the way to beat climate anxiety is through meaningful actions that empower you at home and beyond. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about climate recently, and I have to give a talk this week about that relates very much to the climate crisis. And um, we wrote a little book online called It's Not Too Late. Um, that, it, yes, it is too late to avoid a lot of destruction we're already experiencing, but it's not too late to avoid the very worst. And so I, I think it's really important that we share, again, back to this theme of sharing what we can do uh, and how our diet connects us directly uh, to climate mitigation. Uh, that uh, plant-centered diet is so much healthier for species diversity and for uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I, I also like to say that because we are such a climate culprit, that we have because such we because we are contributing so much, that any change we make here, you know, we we Americans have about three times the global average of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, Americans do. So every change we make here, because we're so much in the, you know, down, that 
can make a more can make a significant impact because we are one of the worst. So um, I think, ironically, that could be motivating because um, I think that uh, we have so much room, so much we can learn for about learn from about how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through um, uh, plant-centered eating. And I think, uh, yeah, I think one of the scholars I used to prepare the book, he said that if we if we uh, move to a plant-centered diet in the United States, it would be equivalent to taking all of the, basically all the traffic off the roads, you know, it would have a huge impact. This is my aha <laughs> at age 26, um, pretty much said it this way when I first got out of the Berkeley Library and put it together, that hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food, but a scarcity of democracy. No society has fulfilled its democratic promise if people go hungry. If some go without food, they have surely been deprived of all power. The existence of hunger belies the existence of democracy. And I, I just think that, to me, uh, yeah, I mean, what is more basic? What is more basic to life? And if, if people aren't meeting those basic needs, then how can we say we have democracy? Because that nobody chooses to go hungry. And so that means we have lost that most basic choice to protect our lives and those we love and our family. And so that's, I think, a good way to look at it, that uh, to measure democracy. Um, and we are really falling short. And I'm hoping that with this book, and I already have another book in mind, <laughs> that uh, I can continue to keep that walk because I feel there is a democracy movement now. It's the first in my lifetime that is really this movement of movements from the racial justice movement, the uh, labor movement, the um, environmental movement, the food movement coming together in a movement of movements. And we try to capture that in a website that we've created called just democracymovement.us. And um, I think that that idea that no matter what our our specific thing that we most get excited about, that if we keep keep one eye on the democracy piece and contribute uh, our time and resources when we can uh, and, and bring it up in conversation that, hey, we can we have a very low rated democracy in America and we can do much better and we've got to improve it, make it more inclusive if we are to meet the hunger crisis and the climate crisis. It's a taproot, in a sense. Your message is clear, and, and the mandate, you know, we don't have another 50 years to, to get no. this right. Um, the, the concern about lobbyists, the concern about equal justice, and the, you talk about the farm upstate New York and how many farmers were at one time black and how that's decreased, you know, significantly, and the lack of food in, in urban areas that are underserved to get fresh food and vegetables. So, you know, you've addressed so many different issues through the lens of looking at hunger. And and I can't thank you enough. I feel like, um, let me just go through a few more of the slides that I've captured, and then I want to open it up to questions. But um, I also want to let you know, Francis, you know, every year we give a Global Educator Award out uh, at the My Hero International Film Festival, and we've been trying to figure out who we would be honoring this year. And you and Anne together um, have gotten the vote of the My Hero Media Arts Education team as, as the leaders and, and with the message that we most want to help amplify so, you know, we have an event December 4th, and I don't know if you're free or not, but it's in the afternoon. It's actually Ava's given us her salon for the film festival this year. Um, so if you want to stop in and get your award from us, we'll be yeah. making a big to-do and a press release. But, oh, wow. um, you know, there's stories written about you on My Hero. Rosemary Pritzker wrote the first one, and it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. And, and there have been several others that have been added over time. And um, we just applaud you. I, I'd love for to show people your website and the educational resources you've put together. Um, it's a, there, you're doing so much, and we want to help amplify your message to 
our audience of students and teachers around the world. And, and, and in our small way, that's one way we would like to help. And of course, we're going to tell everyone to buy the book and, and I hope everybody in this group does as well. But um, let me, let me just end with a few more slides and then we'll open it up to questions if that's okay. And, you want to talk about call your senator and the freedom to vote? Act. Here we go. We've got it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think many are aware that um, there has been a big effort on the part of the Republican Party to push forward, making it more difficult for people to vote. I've forgotten the exact numbers. I was just writing about it a few hours ago, but um, a very, a very widespread national impact and. I did, a, I, one of the things I'd rec, if you want to follow this, I, I got obsessed with this idea of voter fraud and what proof there was for voter fraud because um, we know that, you know, that nobody's really shown proof. Uh, and so I went to the Heritage Foundation, which is uh, the preeminent conservative foundation, and they have a website that supposedly it's supposed to make you feel that there is widespread voter fraud because it has a big number of, at the time, this was a, two months ago, but there was like between 13 and 1400, the big number there, voter fraud, voter fraud. But my partner and I went through the actual data and it turns out that that's a number collected over since the eighties, right? All across the country and levels of, of elections at all levels of government. So when you looked at any one state or any, I mean, maybe there was one or two, you know, but it was so misleading. And so I wrote to the Heritage Foundation and said, uh, do you realize, you know, that that when you break it down to what actually you're talking about over this long period of time, over all these, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of races around the country, that it's it's completely insignificant. You know, it's one or two per if you if you didn't find any, and of course they didn't respond. <laughs> but I just mentioned that because I think that we've got to spread that word more widely than ever. Uh, now that some huge millions of people still believe that the last election was stolen, um, so I think that's really important. If you wanted to look at it, I think be quick to Google my name with the word fraud. <laughs> And uh, hope, uh, hopefully some other things don't come up on that. But um, uh, so I, I um, you know, this is part of the 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 what the Voting Rights Act now that um, is up for a vote is a way to ensure that um, you know that the most um, basic protections are in place, and um, there is a there are limits on the role of money in politics and that there's protections against gerrymandering, the, the partisan drawing of lines. It's really so many dimensions that are foundational to putting, our, you know, rising to really uh, uh, more true democracy of empowered people. So anything, you know, that any of you wanted to key into, and you can also read about, read about it on our democracymovement.us website. There it is. There's the URL. Yeah, there it is. It, yeah, I really like that we got that URL because it's both us and US, you know, depending on how you want to read it. Or we're teamed up with an organization that represents about 60 other organizations. So 45 million people um, in the our team, uh, our co-sponsor of the site, um, is Democracy Initiative, which is a coalition based in in, in D.C. that 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 has brought it's it's an embodiment of the movement of movements because it's brought together people from Sierra Club and from um, a, one of the biggest unions, Communications Workers of America, and uh, NAACP, and on and on, and of course the Common Cause and the Good Government people too, and so we're. Um, we wanted to just create one site that one could go to and read about, you know, the various pieces of the democracy movement. And um, there you go with some of the images. I love it. For the People Act. 
So these are, these are so profound, and, and thank you so much for sharing what your message is and how it gets back to, you know, every one of us and what each one of us can do, both with our diet and our vote. And, you know, this is... Um, oh, I love this Hamilton quote. You want to read it? A power over a man's subsistence amounts to power over his will. Alexander Hamilton, 1788. And then we have a, down at the bottom, in 2019, 10.5% of American households were food insecure at least sometime during the year, including 4.1% that had a very low food security, but that's 5.3 million households. Imagine the number of children. So I think that's so, so obvious and so profound power over a man's subsistence amounts to a power over his will. I, you know, that is really the message that your book brings and has been bringing and you've evolved and the book has evolved and we're just so very grateful to you for being here today and I would like to let other people ask questions. It's been really fun for me to do the research and really understand the work that you and Anne have put into your website, into the book and Heather, congratulations. It's really uh, great, and we do want to help translate as much of it as we can into uh, the teachers and students that we serve. One of the things you didn't mention was genetically modified and Monsanto. And Monsanto really controls the agri-industry in the United States now, and probably in the world. And there's some good documentaries on crime and places like that about it including in India, where these seeds are genetically modified so they can use chemicals on the crops to um, kill weeds, do other things. And there's a David versus Monsanto, I think is the documentary. He won, actually. Can you comment on that? I mean, how does this play into what the people that you... I want sustainable agriculture, and I want organic. And when you've got Monsanto in there, you don't have organic. Right, right. No, I'm so glad you brought that up. In fact, my children's father, my first husband, Mark LePay, wrote the first expose uh, called Against the Grain in 1998. And just to show you the power of Monsanto, when uh, Mark's book was accepted by a publisher, but then... Monsanto threatened to sue, sue the company, and the publisher pulled the book. And he had to go to another publisher, which, interestingly enough, the name of that publisher was Common Courage Press. <laughs> but it was the first, this was, came out in 98, and um, so I'm really glad you asked that. And again, it is a, a symptom of this concentrated power that then infects our political system. In fact, during the Obama's a bit of administration, the Obama administration, there was a gentleman, Michael Taylor, I believe, uh, if anybody can correct me if I got that wrong, but um, who was employed in Monsanto and then in the in the uh, government agency and then back, I think, three times went in and out of government. And that is one of the revolving doors uh, of our, of our uh, corrupted democracy is the way that industry comes in and out, not just as lobbyists, but also as government officials, and then back into industry and then back. And so we ended up then with this uh, one product of um, Roundup Ready um, that um, that this uh, Monsanto, as you probably know now, has been bought by Bayer and been sued and by farmers who have been suffering cancer because they were exposed to the glyphosate, which is a very, which is banned and limited in many, many countries, but not here, um, that they've been exposed to that because that is um, the, the, the genetically modified seeds have been bred to be resistant to that. And so it's a massive amount of this pesticide that has been deemed a carcinogen, uh, and yet it's still is harming people. And last time I looked into this, Monsanto had settled like $10 billion or more. They more or less acknowledging, <laughs> but still, um, it's still being used. So 
Thank you for that question. And Monsanto is definitely, Bayer Monsanto is definitely a symptom of this very, very anti-democratic society in so many ways. Um, I have a question about, the, we've always heard that chemical, we hear that we can't have an adequate food supply without chemical fertilizer. And I'm all for organic and sustainable architect, uh, um, agriculture. But we hear that if we, everything's organic, we won't grow enough food. And this idea that we have to have chemical fertilizer to feed people. Could you speak to that and, and why that's not the case, please? First of all, um, there are many studies done and organic agriculture is perfectly productive enough. But I think we have to start with that, those figures I was giving us to begin with, that our current system is the definition of inefficiency. If we are using 80% of our land to produce 18% of our calories, um, that's problematic. And so part of the, the releasing of all of this pressure and, and all of this pressure to, to grow, 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 grow means also that we're eroding our soil, we're depleting the soil organisms that sustain life over time. We are pouring so much in that, you know, the, the nitrogen I brought up, uh, I don't think a lot of people, I certainly wasn't that aware, but that the nitrogen pollution from uh, chemical fertilizers are, are leaching into the waterways and creating this dead zone in the Mississippi. So if you don't count any of that, then we're really efficient. But this is a crazy definition of, of efficiency. And so I think the, the process is getting, just letting go that we just accepting that, of course, we're wasting, wasting, wasting. And if we move to, um, uh, we on any particular field, you might have fewer, fewer, something, but you wouldn't be wasting so much of it by feeding it to livestock, and, um, and you'd, you'd be freed from that pollution in the, um, in the water and of the feedlots, and I mean, there would just be so many gains to it that just obsessing about which is slightly more productive, organic or corporate chemical, is not the point at all. It's, it's a system a re reframe that we have to have to look at and to start with the premise that our current system is kind of the least efficient thing we could dream up. <laughs> and as I say, it's turning farmers into just contractors who feel very much, you know, not in control of their situation. So I don't know if I'm answering uh, enough, but yeah, that yeah. answers my question is more, I want the, the, facts to refute people when they hear that. So that helps a lot. Thank you. When I hear oh, that organic good. is inefficient and you can't, and, and that's, that's great answer. Thank you very much. I have a question. <laughs> can, I have a, can I ask a question? Um, I went to a farmer's market once uh, in Michigan and uh, there was a nice farmer there who had blueberries and he had said, you can get these, these eight blueberries uh, packages and these are uh, fertilized with not it's not organic or you can get these two these are organic or you can get this one uh, that is wild picked and they're all the same price for those packages so the the point was that you get he gets gets more yield with more stuff with using non-organic fertilizer or using some fertilizer that's organic versus just wild picked and uh, so um, I know that if you just didn't eat meat and you aged other uh, plant-based things that, that the world would have less carbon and all this and that it would be a better, more efficient use of the land, which would be great. Um, but the problem would come, I would think, for people that are already on the low end of income who have no... Uh, they're already, if you're already eating beans as your primary, and you're not eating much meat, uh, and the beans you're eating are, are not organic because then they're cheaper, um, then to, if everyone just had to eat organic things, they would be paying more money for their food. Those people would be paying more money for their food. Uh, if, if they were eating meat and they just gave it up, and ate organic beans, maybe that would um, 
you know, be a savings for them. But if they're already down to just eating beans that are not organic, then they would need more money to go to organic. Do you have a comment on that? I can only answer that in the re in repeating that that it is we can't solve this one <laughs> one element at a time. We have to be our society is so unequal. We have inequality deeper than over a hundred countries in the world. Um, and so that, that, that poverty that people are facing means that it's so difficult to access even, you know, that often neighborhoods don't even have anything but packaged food, processed foods, and no real supermarkets with, with healthy whole foods to begin with, organic or not. So I, I don't think one can answer it uh, in yes or no, what kind of way. We have to be, again, back to my democracy theme song that we have to be creating a democracy in which the rules are changing so that our, our, everyone has an opportunity to have the income they need to feed their families and have access to healthy food. And we're very far from that. So I think, you know, that that's my overall answer. But I do also, you know, if um, know that we have some price comparisons at the end of our book, uh, at the end of the new book, and that, um, again, but it's where a person who's low income can get it, but getting dried legumes, for example, they are incredibly healthy and um, and even, I would, I think, even organic ones, still, it's a lot cheaper to eat that uh, wonderful legume than to eat, um, to buy a meat product. So, I just want to underscore, though, that it's the conversation has to be include anyway this democratization of our economy because it's just um, the idea that there are now three people who control more wealth than half the U.S. population. That's just says it you know says it all that in terms of the inequality that keeps people from having access to healthy food. Um, I would like to encourage everyone to go look at the smallplanet.org website. Um, I, I will share my screen one more time. In such do-or-die moments, humans have sometimes achieved huge shifts in consciousness, allowing choices that were for, before believed to be impossible. And I just want to close by saying that you know, this is a book about the climate crisis, and I, it could be, it could be that this climate crisis is, um, because it, climate, obviously we know we're all connected and we're all contributors, that it could contribute to the shift of consciousness of our interconnection and the way that all of these pieces are linked and, and could motivate people even, you know, much more to move on democracy because we, uh, there is a clear in, in ranking in terms of environmental culprits, I, I call us, and um, people, the countries that are the least democratic are also the contributors um, to the climate crisis. So um, I'm hoping that that exactly could, you know, this, that this climate crisis could be the could be the wake up and that connects us all to solutions.